As we are uh, preaching in the New Testament these days in the book of Galatians, uh, our first scripture reading is from the opposite one, the Old Testament. And we have a number of readings out of Jeremiah. And if you know much about the prophets, you, might, you may know that they, they are trying to call the people back to God and, and, and to, to tell them to repent of this sin or repent of that sin, turn from your ways, turn back to God. And in Jeremiah 10, uh, Jeremiah is, is sort of contrasting all, all the gods of the nations, these things other people worship with the, the true God. Anyways, uh, Craig is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along here in your bulletin from, from Jeremiah 10. Craig. Jeremiah 10. 1 to 10. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by, an, by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nail so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmiths. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. We are working through a series in the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to this whole collection of churches in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, and because they are in, in spiritual danger, uh, they, they are sort of in danger of losing grip on the gospel, what it is, what it means. Um, and today we're really kind of picking up midway through a story, if you were here last week, that Jim preached on. Uh, midway kind of through Paul's testimony as he explains how he got to where he is um, as a preacher and proclaimer of the gospel. Uh, but before we get into it, uh, Dina is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in the back middle panel of your bulletin, and I'll be back in a moment. Dina. Galatians 2, verses 1 to 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, who was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, we're going to spend some time uh, working, through this, working through this text together. Uh, not on. Check, check. I'm getting a signal, getting the, the good lights here. Do you want me to use this? Yeah, we're good now? Okay. Thanks, George. Uh, yes, we're going to be working through this, uh, this text here in Galatians 2. Uh, some of my kids uh, like to listen to a podcast called Greeking Out. Maybe if you have small children, you've heard of this. It's put out by National Geographic Kids. It's essentially, they, they kind of retell the classic Greek myths and stories. You know, Sisyphus and, and the Battle of Troy and the labors of Heracles. That's how you actually pronounce Hercules, I, I've learned listening to this podcast. But every episode, if you listen to this podcast, every episode begins the same. They say this. The stories featured in Greeking Out are original adaptations of classic Greek myths. And then the narrator says something kind of funny. He says, well, this week's story features jealous rats or violence at weddings or planet-sized snakes or, you know, whatever it's about. They essentially give sort of a funny version of all the highlights of the story, you know, it's good to suck you in and get you to listen. And this intro was rattling around my head, partially because it's on in my house regularly, but as I was studying this week's text... Because the stories told in Galatians 2, they're not classic Greek myths. Now, they're not Turkish myths. They're not myths at all. But they do have some incredible features. And if we were making sort of a Greeking out intro for what we find in Galatians 2, it would sound something like, this week's story features espionage, secret plots, different missions, dinner disagreements, and a circumcision party. And when you say it that way, it's like, ooh, that sounds very salacious, you know, kind of saucy. But buried in the story, even as Paul just tells us his story, there are some important lessons about how the gospel makes us free, how the gospel both diversifies us and unites us, and what it looks like for the gospel to influence our, our day-to-day walking around life. So lot, lots of interesting stuff here. We're going to get to it. I'm going to take it in three parts. First, how the gospel brings freedom. Then we'll talk about diversity and unity and then walking in step with the gospel. Now, Paul, as I said, he's in the middle of a kind of testimony at this point in Galatians. He's been rehearsing. Here's what God has done in my life ever since sort of Jesus knocked him off a horse on the way to Damascus. Um, and, he, he was, and then before that, he was zealously and violently persecuting the church of God. And, and he's telling that story all the way up until he's approved and sent out as an apostle, as a missionary by the original 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And Paul has been anxious to tell these Galatians, um, this is how the gospel came. It came from Jesus himself. No one altered it. No one influenced along the way. It's this beautiful testimony. 
But what we haven't heard yet, what we, did, what we didn't get to last week, is how, is how Paul ended up as a preacher and as an apostle to the Gentiles. Chapter 1 ends with Paul making a visit to Jerusalem to see Peter and James, some of the other apostles. And then it says he, he goes off into the region of Syria and Cilicia. That's like north and a little bit west of Israel. And that's where we kind of left things off. So we pick up in verse 1 of our text. It says, 14 years have now passed. Uh, It's unclear if that means 14 years have passed since Paul's conversion or 14 years have passed since the first visit to Jerusalem. But either way, he is going back to Jerusalem. And if you look there, it says he takes two people with him, Barnabas and Titus. Now, Barnabas's inclusion, no brainer. Barnabas, great encourager, well known in the Christian community, has been around for a long time. He's actually been Paul's partner in, in church planting and pastoring and missionary work. No surprise that Paul is bringing Barnabas along. The unusual choice here, somewhat controversial choice, is Titus. Because Titus is a Gentile Christian, and text says, as such, was not circumcised. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, there are plenty of uh, false Christians wandering around telling people to be a real Christian, to be a true Christian, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to follow the law of Moses. You have to become culturally Jewish. And the law of Moses, of course, requires males to be circumcised. And so because Paul is fighting with these Jewish teachers, he's arguing, no, no, all you need is faith in Jesus. You don't need anything else. And now he's going into the church in Jerusalem, sort of the the headquarters of the Christian movement as they're wrestling with this question. And he's bringing along an uncircumcised Gentile believer. So I think we can see, it doesn't say it, but I think we can say he's being a bit provocative a little bit confrontative, not sure if that's a question, but he's, he's, he's kind of bringing him along. He's getting into the heart of Jewish territory, but he's putting a face on the problem. He's kind of humanizing this question. Sometimes when we, make, when we make policy decisions, you know, politically, or we make theological decisions in the church, we're not always directly confronted with the people it will affect. And that can keep our decisions at a kind of more theoretical level. I've heard it proposed, I can't remember where, but if a government votes to go to war, that everyone who votes in favor, any members of parliament or whatever, um, they're automatically conscripted to fight. Or if they're too old, their children are automatically conscripted to fight. It, it may not change the outcome of a vote. A country may still decide to go to war, but one feels the consequences of a vote much more poignantly if you're like automatically implicated in that decision. Or if a politician, you know, votes to cut funding for a food bank, that they have to go to that food bank and explain to the people, you know, who depend on that food bank that they're cutting the funding. See, often our decisions are quite abstract, but Paul sort of forces the issue. He brings it forward by bringing Titus, as if to say, if you're going to decide on Jewish law adherence for all Christians, then sort of look Titus in the face and tell them that. Not that Paul would have agreed, but just puts a face on it. So Paul's in Jerusalem. He's arguing about this Jewish law adherence, but also the text mentions it a few times. He also wants to be reassured that he's preaching the gospel well or correctly. Twice he mentions meeting with the apostles. He calls them those who seem to be influential. Can't tell if it's a bit tongue in cheek there, but just double checking. He's not getting anything wrong. He hasn't missed anything. And as Jim explained last week, he finds out there. No, they're not adding anything to his preaching. This gospel is from God. So Paul is in Jerusalem with Titus and Barnabas, and now we get to the espionage, the secret plots. Look at verse 4. False brothers are secretly brought in. That's to spy, espionage. They're they're spying out the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. That is what Paul writes. There's a secret plot going on. Now, a couple of interesting things about it. 
First, Paul doesn't actually think they're Christians. You see, he calls them false brothers. They're not real brothers, they're false brothers. We, we often use that, that term, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They may look like a Christian, they may appear to be a Christian, they may even call themselves Christians, but Paul says, and, and we would say, they're not actually Christians. They're, they're false, they're not true. Secondly, they are only there to spy. So they're not sort of serious inquirers. They're not curious about the Christian faith. Um, They are there to examine, oh, what's going on with these Christians over here? Let's see what they're doing so that we can take it away from them, so we can can get rid of it. And this this reference to freedom is kind of about the Jewish laws and observances. Paul isn't talking about civic freedom or political freedom. He's talking about religious freedom, moral freedom. And, and the, these, these spies are there to spy it out so they can pull the Christians back into slavery, Paul says. And again, not political slavery, not vocational slavery, not cotton farming you know, slavery, uh, spiritual and religious slavery. That is what is at stake here. So what is Paul saying? Fake Christians are coming into churches to see how these primarily new Gentile Christians are living. And instead of encouraging them that freedom, they want to put them back under the yoke of Jewish laws and observances to follow the laws of circumcision, the feasts, the cleanliness laws, and so on. Now, if I could play skeptic for a moment, I might say, what's the big deal? Why is Paul so upset? Why does it matter if some Christians want to observe the Jewish feasts alongside their new faith in Christ? What's the big deal? After all, didn't Christianity grow up out of the root of Judaism? Perhaps even today, like in in modern times, you know what's called a messianic Christian, a person who trusts Jesus as their savior, and yet they still celebrate some of the feasts or or the customs. It doesn't seem to be a problem for them. Why is it a problem for these early believers? Isn't Paul overreacting? It's a good question. But if you look at what Paul says in verse five, it's something important. He says, he didn't yield to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, this isn't a secondary issue for Paul. He says it's a primary issue. The truth of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, that's what's at stake. This, this, it's a question of freedom versus binding the conscience. Are Christians free to observe a Jewish feast? Of course. You can go to a Hanukkah celebration or whatever. Of course you're free to attend something like that, as long as it belongs in the realm of helpfulness and not salvation. The gospel says salvation is by Christ alone. Observance of the law does not add anything to our salvation. The truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, anyone who trusts him is saved, that must not be threatened, must never be threatened by the addition of mandatory laws, Jewish or otherwise. But I want to just ask a kind of related question. Why does Paul use the language of slavery and freedom to explain the gospel? Or in what ways does the gospel make us free? I think the gospel leads to two kinds of freedom. I think it leads to cultural freedom. I'll say more about that. And I think it leads to emotional and psychological freedom. Pardon me. What do I mean by cultural freedom? I mean that when the gospel is the sole means of salvation, then a Christian could come from any, any cultural background. If you don't need to follow uh, circumcision or Jewish dietary laws, then you can be a Canadian and still be a Christian. You can also be Congolese. You you can be whatever you want. Culturally, it doesn't matter what you are. What matters is, do you trust Christ or not? And maybe imagine for a moment if it wasn't so. Imagine, you also have to be a very orthodox observer of Jewish law in order to be a Christian. 
Well, if you've ever spent time uh, in a neighborhood full of Orthodox Jews, if you've lived in Toronto or another big city, maybe you've, you've seen this, you know what that looks like. Because of their strict Sabbath adherence, because of their dietary laws, uh, strict Jews tend to cluster together in one or two neighborhoods in a city because they need their, their kosher butcher or their kosher food, they need to walk to synagogue on Sundays and so on. It functionally kind of creates a bit of a ghetto, not the negative sense, just in a large concentration of, of one kind of person or the same kind of people. But the cultural freedom of the gospel means you can't walk into a room and know who the Christians are. Because they kind of look the same. They eat the same food as their neighbors. They dress largely the same. Because we don't have to be Jewish, we're free to be Canadian Christians or Quebecois Christians or Swedish Christians. Whatever you are, you can be that and be a Christian. The gospel brings cultural freedom. But secondly, the gospel brings emotional and psychological freedom. And what I mean is this. The law of the Old Testament did a few things. I mean, I want to set the people apart. It created an identity for, for, the, for the Jewish, the Israelite people. But one of its main functions is to show us our need for our Savior. Because the law is basically impossible to keep. How, how, do you, how do you perfectly welcome the poor and the foreigner? How do you perfectly love your neighbor as yourself at, at all times? How, how do you teach your children perfectly? The, the law shows us we can't measure up. We need a Savior. And if you are depending on the law to be a Christian, you will spend your life on a treadmill of guilt and insecurity. You always feel behind. You always feel like you can't keep up. Have you ever walked or run on one of those manual treadmills that matches your speed? Not the one where you like set the speed, but it has like a flywheel or something in it. And no matter how fast you run, it keeps pace with you. You can, you can just sort of casually meander along at a kilometer or two an hour, or you can be sprinting. It doesn't matter. You never get anywhere. It just goes as fast as you are going. Depending on the law for salvation, it's an emotional treadmill. You never arrive. You never feel good about your progress. No matter how fast you run, no matter how much effort you put out, you're just stuck feeling guilty. Whereas the gospel tells us you aren't saved because of your law observance. You're saved because of what Christ has done. So I would ask you, if you constantly feel like a bad Christian, if you regularly feel guilty that you haven't done enough, you aren't being enough as a Christian, I think the question here to consider is, are you really living by the gospel? Has it gone deep enough into your heart that you believe it's not your own goodness that saves you? The gospel makes us free, culturally free, psychologically, emotionally free. And if we aren't, then it's worth asking what we believe. Okay, we got to get to part two. Diversity and unity. So in Jerusalem, Paul says he doesn't yield to the spies. The secret plot fails. Uh, instead, they get this reassurance from the, 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 the perceived influential apostles that he's preaching the true gospel. But more than that, if you look at verse seven, the apostles can tell that Paul has been entrusted to take the gospel to the Gentiles, while Peter and the others were entrusted to take the gospel to the Jews. In verse 8, Paul says, the same person who gave Peter his commission, Jesus, is the same person who gave Paul his commission. Jesus told them to do different things with the same message. Paul, who have different languages, different cultures, different geographic regions, different a lot of things. Essentially, there is diversity to their callings. And this may sound simple, maybe obvious, but we've got to say it. Christians are called differently. Christian churches are called differently because the gospel of Jesus isn't culturally bound, there are going to be differences in how the same gospel is preached and lived in different places. Did you know that we preach the gospel in English? But most Christian churches don't. 
We're, we're, we're in the minority in the language we preach in. Or we sing with guitars and piano, you know, mainly. Most Christian churches don't. I speak with examples and illustrations drawn mainly from Canadian, you know, sort of a Western context. You know, Greeking out didn't even exist four years ago. But most Christian churches wouldn't. Most Christian churches are Asian and African, not Western. But we have a particular calling to this place, the people who live around here. We do not have a, a universal calling to all the people in all the places. So the way we live out our calling here at Resurrection will be different from how other people live out theirs. You know, Grace Gatineau, this church that we're helping plant, will have a different calling from Resurrection Church. The same gospel, the same Jesus can be proclaimed there even if the language or the instrumentation or the song choices or the way they do discipleship or their weekly rhythm is different. In fact, we ought to expect it to be different. Because they are reaching not who we are. We have some overlap, of course. I mean, it's only 10 minutes away. But there's, there's quite a different sort of culture there. But herein lies a danger. As the gospel goes out into all the world, into all these cultures and subcultures, we have these diverse callings. There are two ditches that mu we must avoid. And the first ditch is probably the one you're thinking of. We, we have to worry about over-adapting to the culture. When we over-adapt to the culture, we lose or we change some essential part of the gospel message. You know, if we were in a heavily Muslim context, we might be tempted to underplay how Trinitarian God is, maybe hoping to appeal to, to Muslim neighbors who believe in one God. And perhaps in a modern Western context, uh, we underplay the uniqueness of Jesus in hopes of appealing to a more pluralistic, multicultural land. In both of these examples, we have lost or we have changed something essential about the gospel. There's a great danger in over-adapting, but it's not the only danger. There's also a danger that we fail to adapt to diverse callings. In this case, in the under-adapting case, we insist that our own cultural preferences are, in are essential for teaching the gospel. Perhaps we suddenly begin to believe that piano is the only proper instrument to accompany the singing. Piano is a wonderful instrument to sing along with doesn't need to be universal. We don't need to attach a moral significance to singing with a piano. Or perhaps to think to truly worship, we must sit in pews. We don't even have pews, but maybe you think that. Or we, or we must speak English or Latin or whatever you think is the correct language. In this case of under-adapting, we have failed to recognize there is a diversity of callings and the same gospel can go into many different places and adapt to those places without losing its essence. And maybe you're thinking, we would never do that at Resurrection. Us, a flexible, adaptable church plant, you know, I keep changing things on you. We would never fall prey to that. How many of us sit in the same seat every week? How many of us have, would have a hard time if you came in one week and a synthesizer was being used, you know, in, instead of our current instrumentation? We are creatures of habit. We're all prone to settle in. We're all prone to make things comfortable. And we have to continually wonder, are we failing to adapt to the world we find ourselves in? I think a lot of us get stuck asking, well, what mission does God want our church to go on or to me to go on? It's not a bad question, but I think there's a better question. What kind of church does God want for his mission? Not what mission does he have for us? What kind of church does he have for his mission? And as we think down the road about future church plants, we, we shouldn't be thinking, how can we replicate resurrection in some other place? I don't think that's the best question. I think a better question is, what types of churches are going to be needed to reach all the people that we can't? And we don't. We can't fall into the trap or into the ditch of failing to adapt. 
And I'll tell you where it come, hits home for me. I would love to have a church building. All you people who are on chairs every week, you'd also love to have a church building. Uh, I could see how it would be helpful for us, how we could use it for mission. But I have wondered, wondered, is a church building the best thing for us? What, what time or attention or money might it suck up? Would owning a church building actually be healthy for us? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I just think we have to ask it. We have to talk about it. We have to, have, we have to understand there is a diversity of callings as the gospel moves into every culture and subculture, that gospel creates diversity, and we don't automatically know what kind of church we need to be in order to reach our neighbors. Okay, we've got to talk about the unity part. Because even amongst all this diversity, all these different callings, all this adaptation, there needs to be a unity. And what Paul says, in all places, in all cultures, the gospel insists that we remember the poor. That's in verse 10. Now I wonder, if I asked you, besides the preaching and living out of the gospel, besides that, set that aside, what's the one practice that should mark every Christian church? If you walked into it and you didn't know it was a church, they're meeting in a community center or something like that, what habit would tip you off that you'd entered a Christian church? All of these other apostles, Peter, James, and John, and Paul all agree the Christian church should always remember the poor, no matter the context, no matter where it finds itself. Now, there's kind of a particular reason for this and a universal one. The particular reason is because the churches in Judea, the mainly Jewish churches in Judea, were quite poor. If you read through Acts, you read through some of the other epistles, you'll read about collections being taken up and, and, and delivered, dropped off uh, in Jerusalem um, by, by mainly the Gentile believers would be sending to the Jewish, the Jewish Christians. Basically because of differing economic conditions. It's, it's a bit of a long story. But the mainly Gentile churches were, were well off. They were rich, in manner of speaking. And the, the Jewish, the Judean churches were quite poor. So partially, this command to remember the poor, it's, it's kind of this commitment to unity in the body of Christ. We need to share resources between our churches as one has more and others have less. But there's also a universal sense in which this, is, this command exists. Because all through the scriptures, the people of God are commanded to be like God. And God shows mercy and compassion to the poor. And Jesus comes to the spiritually poor that we might be enriched. But all over the scriptures, we're commanded to be generous to those who cannot pay us back, to work for mercy and justice in whatever context we find ourselves. And interestingly, we have even have a particular role in the church called deacon, where we set people aside and say, help us remember to care for the poor. They're either with the poor among us or the poor outside of us. The economically poor, the socially poor, the, the vocationally poor, you know, those who can't or, or, or don't work, those who are poor in terms of family connections, like poor with a capital P. Help us remember these people. The church is to be marked by its care for the poor, who are among them and who are outside them. Now, look, this is something we're still working on as our church. Many of our programs that we were engaged with the poor on levels, different levels were, were disrupted by COVID. I'm not sure, we definitely don't have, we're not, we don't, we're not finished in this, we got a lot of work to do. But our deacons and some others are giving some serious thought to it, because we can't ignore it. We're supposed to remember the poor. The church cannot be simply content with the gospel message and sit on it. It must translate these call, into callings both diverse and unified. And that really leads us to part three, where we kind of see a practical example of how this works out, and I've called this walking in step with the gospel. Now, the scene suddenly shifts. If you're kind of following along the geography, uh, in verse 11, Paul's not at Jerusalem anymore, but he's at Antioch. Uh, that's a city in the, in the north of Israel, kind of modern-day Syria, if, that, if that's helpful. 
And in Antioch, Cephas, Peter, has been enjoying the freedom of the gospel. He's not been following all the cleanliness rules of the Jews. And one of their customs was you know, not to eat with ceremonially unclean people, a.k.a. Gentiles, not Jews. But Peter has been happily eating with Gentiles. He's like, I'm loving the freedom of the gospel. He's, he's reveling in it. But what happens in verse 12 is that some Jews arrive from Jerusalem, sent by the apostle James, and Paul calls this crew the circumcision party. Now I'm going to do my best to refrain from any jokes about how funny that, that phrase sounds, but Peter is afraid of them. Not physically, he is worried about what they will think about him. He's worried they're going to think he's not a very good apostle. Look at, he's eating with the Gentiles. And so Peter in Antioch, out of fear, stops eating with the Gentiles. He separates himself. He begins to follow Jewish cleanliness laws again. Barnabas follows Peter's lead. He's like, well, Peter knows he's an apostle or whatever. Paul can see this as a major, major danger. He actually says Peter stands condemned, which is quite a, quite a strong statement. But also, if you look at verse 14, Paul says the conduct of Peter and Barnabas was not in step with the gospel. Now, Paul uses this really interesting Greek word to explain what's going on. When he says they're, they're not in step with the gospel, he says Peter and Barnabas were not ortho-walking with the gospel. That's like li the literal translation. Now, what does ortho-walking mean? Well, we use the word ortho in our society. It means to straighten something. Orthodontics, you know, straighten your teeth. Orthotics, straighten your, your walking, your gait. And Paul says that to live like Jews, the way that Peter and Barnabas are, that's not ortho-walking with the gospel. It's not in line with the gospel. It's not straight as the gospel defines straight. And that's important for us because it means the gospel is both an announcement as a message of what Christ has done, but it carries with it a set of implications for regular life. Remember, it's an announcement. Jesus died to save sinners, but it has all these implications sort of downstream. It functions like a plumb line or a level that we hold up to our lives, we hold up to our churches and say, are we walking in line with this? And Paul tells us Peter's racism and his cowardice were both not in line with the gospel. When I say racism, I mean his refusal to eat with Gentiles that's not in line with the gospel because the gospel makes us free. That's what we talked about. It gives cultural freedom. You don't have to be culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian. But when we insist that our cultural practices usurp are more important than the gospel, then we are out of line. Particularly when we insist that you must follow our cultural practices in order to be a Christian. That's not in step with the gospel. Pulling back from eating with the Gentiles... That's a repudiation of the gospel. But I think it's very interesting to note, it wasn't just Peter's racism, it was also his cowardice that was out of line with the gospel. He didn't start withdrawing from fellowship with the Gentiles until when? Until the circumcision party, these men from James showed up. He withdrew out of fear. And this means that the gospel has not sunk down into the, the deep part of his heart. The gospel shows us God's great love and care for us, how it does not depend on our own effort, but on Christ. And the love of God on display in the gospel, it's supposed to give us the security, the safety we need in hard situations. To resist being squeezed back into legalism. To resist the peer pressure of those who really want to, uh, uh, want, want to disrespect us or lead us astray. See, somehow Peter has forgotten the love of Christ. It's gotten displaced from his heart. And what we see then, if you follow me, is it isn't just our behaviors that get out of line with the gospel, but also our attitudes, our desires, our fears, and our hopes. 
It's humbling to consider that we need to repent, not just of our obvious sins, but also the reasons we committed those sins in the first place. So for Peter, the racism is the surface issue. The cowardice is the deeper issue. The gospel confronts both of them. Because the gospel confronts us on the level of behavior and desires. It means that we repent of our sins, but we also sometimes repent of the reasons we do good things. How many of us become more patient parents when other people are watching? How many of us work harder and don't waste time when our screen can be seen by our boss? Accountability, it's a good thing, but it shows us the fickleness of our hearts. That even the Apostle Peter can get caught up in fear and cowardice. And that all of us at times we realize that we are not ortho-walking with the gospel. Now I realize this morning, these issues seem quite far from us. Secret plots, espionage, dinner parties, battles over cleanliness laws. But the gospel still confronts us. It sets a standard for us to follow. But it also promises grace, mercy, and forgiveness to all who fall short. You know that from what we know from both Galatians and the book of Acts, this wasn't the last step for Peter. The, the story just ends. Paul doesn't actually say what happened. He just says, I confronted him and I told him this. And then he was like, what happened next? What we know is that though he messed up in Antioch, there was forgiveness and grace for a man who acted cowardly and legalistically. Peter again bombs out, but he comes back because there is grace for him and grace for us and grace for me. Not because Peter earned it, not because we earned it, but because Christ has generously extended it to us. So my prayer today is you would know this Jesus, this Savior, this Redeemer, this friend of sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, we long to be people who walk in step with your gospel, who are aligned to it. Please show us where we've gotten out of step. Please show us where things have become too important to us, where we valued our own preferences too much. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you make us right? In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.